this week's Investor Podcast. This is Gavin Ralston, and I'm delighted to have with me Bob Jolly, Head of Global Macro. Bob, I think I'm right in saying this is the first appearance you've made on this podcast. It is indeed, yes. Well, we look forward to what you have to say and indeed to future appearances. Thank you. It's also great timing for a focus on fixed income um, because we've seen something of a sea change in markets in the last two weeks. Uh, Between October last year and the beginning of July, yields had been in a steady downwards trend, fed on a diet of weaker growth, almost no inflation and expectations for Fed easing, which had been verging on the apocalyptic. Uh, In the last couple of weeks, however, we've seen uh, a roughly 20 basis point pickup in US 10-year yields and a similar increase in Germany. So the outlook for duration is something we need to focus on with Bob. We'll also talk about his latest views of the Fed's thinking and where he sees opportunities at this time of compressed yields in the currency and bond markets, building on the themes set out in the latest QIF. But if we look more specifically at the last week, uh, we saw new data on US inflation, which was slightly stronger than markets expected. Core CPI was up 2.1%. And at the same time, we had more hawkish comments from the Fed chairman on the inflationary outlook. Recent global growth figures have also been weaker. We had uh, Chinese second quarter growth at the start of this week. It was in line with expectations at 6.2%, but that means it's at a 30-year low. And we also saw last week a very weak growth number from Singapore, which is a good barometer of the world economy and world trade in particular. I talked about a sea change in bond markets, but the rise in yields so far has not been enough to undermine the equity markets. Stocks in Europe and in the US are just a fraction shy of all-time highs. So the Alex Tedder view he expressed a couple of weeks ago that there would continue to be an upward squeeze in equities, at least in the short term, is intact. But Bob, turning to you, um, I talked about the, the rise in US 10-year yields in the last couple of weeks. Do you think we've seen the low as far as government yields go in this phase of the cycle? Well, probably not, because... If you think about it this way, we're already obviously at the the largest and longest expansion that we have on record uh, in places like America. And that's in part because um, we haven't had the the usual excesses that creep into an economy which typically bring about the late cycle and the Fed needing to, or central banks in general, needing to tighten policy away. So in an environment where you have Growth not too strong, not too not too slow, um, and you have inflation, which is pretty pretty much missing in action everywhere. You have a central banking backdrop, which is let's be accommodative, let's be friendly. Now, eventually, it's likely that the economy will slow further, and that the Fed will have to ease more aggressively, and that probably will take yields lower over uh, the, the forthcoming six to twelve months. So it sounds like you're saying the Fed will be very data-driven over the next six months. I think so. I think if you sort of put the Fed into context, global growth has, global growth has clearly slowed um, and it's now beginning to spill over into the US. And that's, that's one of the reasons why the Fed have started to shift their rhetoric from on hold to an easing bias. Clearly, uh, the uncertainties of trade and the general black backdrop for global trade look pretty horrendous really so that's one of the second you know even though the u.s is a relatively closed economy it does feel the pinch there brexit remains unresolved what that's really doing is it's really beginning to impinge upon companies 
willing to spend. So capex uh, expectations are slowing. Um, and then when you switch to the other side in terms of employment, uh, most people now believe that the natural rate of unemployment is lower pretty much everywhere. And that's in part because we've had such limited wage inflation in most of the world. The UK, interestingly, uh, an exception there. But inflation expectations are dangerously low. And in an environment where you, where you have that zero bound, you do want to be, if you're the Fed, ahead of the curve rather than behind the curve. And there's an active debate going on in the Fed at the moment about what they should be doing in terms of inflation because they, they, they don't like the idea of being infl seeing as inflation cappers. Um, and they really don't want to be in an environment that, say, the ECB or the BOJ are in where inflation is just too low and it's very difficult to motivate people's expectations for higher inflation going forward. So the net-net is that the Fed will basically try and be early rather than late, um, despite the fact that if you look at employment and, and most other pictures, it doesn't look actually that bad. But they really want to get ahead of the curve. So how do you reflect those views in the duration positioning in strategies like global bond or strategic bond? Um, we were quite long. Uh, we're less long now. I mean, I think when the world was getting very, very excited and, and yields were, as you say, plummeting, um, that was probably a bit too much for us. I mean, we certainly are concerned about the outlook for the global economy. We're concerned about trade. At the moment, the only real area that has held, held up has been the service sector. But if there's cracks appearing there, then you really are looking at something which is more a more conventional easing cycle. And we've talked so far mainly about the US and the Fed's expectations. Yields have also started to rise a bit in, in Europe, in Germany. They're less negative than they were a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Isn't the growth outlook significantly worse in Europe and therefore the duration position might be different there? It is, but I think you have to think about who's buying European debt. Um, the Japanese have essentially been closed out of their market by the BOJ. So they're looking around the world trying to find um, spread or a pickup on a hedge basis back into yen. The US is very difficult for them because the curve is quite flat. Europe is a much steeper curve. You then have the periphery, which gives you spread to, uh, to the core. And having bought... Um, an awful lot of French bonds. They've they've obviously moved uh, their exposure a little bit into the likes of Spain and even a little bit of Italy now. So there is this huge yield grab going on by Asian and predominantly Japanese investors, which have suppressed yields. So it's not just expectations; it's also that flow of funds that has been dramatic uh, into uh, European debt. Europe, in a, in a lot of ways, like the US, basically sort of had this huge rally. Uh, and in general, um, we reached that sort of point where markets were too overbought. There was too many longs. I don't think you can find a short in Spain, for example, anywhere in the world. And that basically just gave way to a bit of profit taking. And that's why you had to back up in yields. There's nothing really any more sinister than that. And do you have duration positions in some of the peripheral European We markets? do. We, we, we have less than we did. Um, we sold it um, actually on the 4th of July and the 5th of July, um, which is an interesting day to Good try timing. and trade. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we still think that the structural story for Spain especially is good. Italy, um, a little bit more challenging, but obviously you get a much wider spread. So we tend to look at Italy at the front end, Spain a bit, bit further out in terms of the curve. Uh, but we also have Semicore, we also have uh, France in the portfolio. And Europe is collectively probably the most 
um, positive market that we're on, in part because of the shape of the curve and in part because of that international bid, as well as obviously the ECB potentially restarting QE. And going back to the US and the short end of the yield curve, expectations for Fed easing became quite extreme. Do you think the markets are now rightly calibrated with what the Fed is likely to do in your view? Um, We actually use the front end as a bit of a hedge for us. So we have options um, which, um, if the Fed don't actually follow through, will actually pay off quite quite nicely for us. Um, So at these levels, we're not really fighting the tape in terms of saying that the Fed are going to dramatically out or under uh, deliver in terms of rate cuts. I think, as as you said at the start, they are data dependent. Um, I have to say that we have our monthly macro meeting this afternoon and reading through the the prep uh, for that meeting, it's very difficult to see a shining light pretty much anywhere in the world. So the US may be relatively good, but it has its own challenges. Um, So it wouldn't surprise us if the markets move to discount further and further uh, easing by the Fed. Let's talk for a moment about the currency markets and the dollar in particular. The dollar has traded in a very narrow range this year. I think it's you know, very slightly down where it was in January the 1st. Do you think we'll see any bigger moves than the dollar in the second half of the year? I think the uh, the storm clouds for the dollar are, are, are clearly gathering. I mean, it's, it's obviously an expensive currency. Um, you have Donald Trump um, becoming more and more vocal about America first, about the dollar being too strong, about the Fed making a mistake, uh, and, you know, the potential, which is unlikely, but a potential nevertheless, that uh, he does actually instruct the Treasury to and the Fed to sell the dollar down, um, to regain some of that competitiveness that he keeps on talking about. But that aside, one of the principal reasons the dollar's held in, held in so well has been relative growth and higher interest rates. If you begin to see relative growth narrow and you see lower interest rate differentials, the probability is the dollar will sell off. And we're not quite fully engaged in that theme just yet, but it's certainly a theme that we're looking to uh, build as we go through the second half of this year. And are there other themes in the currency markets that you are pursuing more actively? In an (laughs) environment of basically central banks falling over themselves to be accommodative, it's a pretty good environment, especially if you get a little bit of growth to be in EM. Uh, both local currency uh, and also um, the currency unhedged as well. So we like Indonesia. Uh, We have done for some time. That's worked very well this year. Uh, But we also have a a basket of other EM currencies that we have small positions in. And the rationale for EM is obviously yields are higher, the carry is there, but also the potential to reduce rates uh, as as a means of offsetting weaker growth is much greater in emerging markets than it is in developed. Yes. Um, clearly, they have been constrained by the strength of the dollar. If the dollar weakens, then th- they will almost certainly look to ease policy. And the European currencies? Uh, we have a structural love affair with uh, the Norwegian krona. Um, interestingly, Norway has a bit more inflation than most. It was one of the earlier adopters of fiscal easing. Um, and it's had a very weak currency. So it it does actually have a a central bank that is tightening policy. The one problem with the Norwegian kroner is actually everyone likes it, including us. Um, So that's one of the reasons why it's not actually performing as well. But it offers decent carry against the euro. It's relatively cheap. Obviously, you're sensitive to oil, so if the global economy were to deteriorate markedly, that would be a serious headwind. 
Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a relatively attractive currency. Um, sterling, obviously, the big challenge for sterling is Brexit. Boris Johnson or whoever gets the uh, prime minister job, I sort of assume it will be Boris. Um, but it's a relatively cheap currency. Uh, obviously, it does a lot of business with Europe, um, which is one of the things that's held Europe back. Um, but you know, from our analysis, Europe basically is um, is a is a beneficiary of, of strong global trade. So if you go back to 2018 when Europe was at the peak, that really was when global trade was doing extremely well, when China was uh, rebuilding its, its, um, its infrastructure. And since then, as that global trade picture has deteriorated, so you've seen this quite marked deterioration in the European backdrop. Now, the UK until recently held up relatively well, but obviously has had this overhang of Brexit. Now, should we get some kind of resolution of Brexit, then sterling should go up quite markedly both against the dollar, but also against the euro. But it's not possible to bet on that uh, in any size in portfolios at the no. moment because of the political dimension. No, unless someone has a, a crystal ball or maybe the insides of, um, of Boris Johnson at their disposal, um, no, it's difficult to have any meaningful position or structural position. Let's talk for a moment about China. China's had a lot of attention because of the inclusion of Chinese bonds in the bond benchmarks as well as equities in the equity benchmarks. What's your positioning on China? Um, China we own. Uh, we, we do like the bond market. Um, our Asian colleagues, Julia Ho, uh, Chao Yang, um, have certainly been helping us in giving us insights into what's going on in China. And the, the story really is that, obviously, for a long time, the Chinese use fiscal policy. Um, and fiscal policy was first and foremost investing in infrastructure. Um, now you've got to the point where essentially the Chinese balance sheet looks a bit over-levered. Then to get additional stimulus, it really has to come either through the exchange rate, which is obviously um, red rate to a ball to Donald Trump, or through interest rates. So the Fed easing gives the Chinese the opportunity to ease as well. Um, and we tend to think that monetary policy will continue to follow through in terms of easier monetary policy in the bond market um, rallying on the back of it. And you think the Chinese authorities will be able to hold the currency at seven to the dollar or above? We're not, um, we're not willing to take a view um, dramatically either way. I think it's easier if you look at Asia to look at those countries that are affected by um, both the switch in China or the, the, the shift in China away from manufacturing towards services away from investment towards services. And the countries that are going to be most sensitive to globalization becoming either regionalization or nationalization, and places like Korea, Taiwan, really are um, structurally challenged on that front. So rather than sort of uh, bet on whether the Chinese authorities are going to shift or not shift, it's a lot easier to sit there and say, structurally, we don't like Taiwan, structurally, we don't like Korea because their business model is essentially broken. Mm. And Craig Botham published a piece yesterday on the um, second quarter GDP numbers, which was arguing that we will see something of a pickup in Chinese growth in the second half of the year, largely because of the stimulus measures you were talking about. I mean, do, you, do you think that changes the picture? Not dramatically. I, mean, I think you know, China don't want to overheat. They don't want to overly slow. Um, and, but they do need to remodel themselves. Um, the amount of um, 
of 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 debt you have to invest to grow at a an increasingly unsustainable rate is in itself unsustainable. So they recognize that. They also recognize that as they've moved from being a developing towards a developed economy, so their business model also has to change. Mm. So you can't do it through a debt-fueled, um, unsustainable investment boom. You have to do it in a more conventional way. And you have to rely on essentially domestic demand through hopefully the, the, the domestic consumer and the domestic business. Now, obviously, that's difficult because, you know, you have a lot of challenges coming from, from America and global trade generally. Um, but if you carry on over-investing, if you carry on over-stimulate or over-spending, then ultimately you'll, you'll sow the seeds of the next problem. And one last question on China. The exposure you have there is through the government bond market rather than through the policy bank bonds. That's right. Talk for a moment about investment-grade credit and spreads are, whether it's US or Europe, 110, 120 basis points. Is there still value there? Well, it's more a case of, of um, what's the catalyst for things to revert to any kind of equilibria. So on any kind of fair value metric, you'd probably say that most things are expensive. You'd probably say equities are expensive. You'd say corporate bonds are expensive. You'd also say that uh, the term premium that you have in the government bond market is artificially low. But that's in part because of the activities of central banks. That's in part because they are trying to keep the gravy train um, going. And in that sort of environment, you have to sort of suspend the, the equilibrium or you have to spend the value metric in your, in your or, or certainly reduce uh, the impact it has on your investment decision making. So in this environment, we have some. We don't have a huge amount. Um, but we but we maintain a, a long position to credit because it's difficult to see there being a, a, a real, really big problem as we go through the balance of this year. And if you put all these views together and look at your positioning within uh, the global fixed income strategies, wh where are the views on which you have the highest conviction at the moment? Well, if you'd asked me a couple of weeks ago, I could have given you a nice story about duration and, and the periphery and everything looking sweet. Um, to be fair, we've had a, a pretty decent run in terms of performance, uh, and we've been taking risk off the, we've been taking chips off the table. So it's difficult to say that we have a, a very high conviction that the, you know the bond market is going to carry on rallying or that the dollar is going to collapse. Um, we are to an extent sort of treading water at the moment. Um, we have a little bit of credit, we have a little procyclicality in in our exchange rate positioning. And we have a little bit of duration, but it's nowhere near as aggressive as it was, in part because markets have moved as much as they've moved. I think if you sort of say, how do you expect to make money as you go through the balance of 2019 into 2020? It could be quite exciting in terms of the dollar. We do think the dollar is reaching that sort of point where you might actually see a, a more of a structural um, shift uh, lower in the US dollar. And, and there's increasingly attractive entry points there. I think in terms of the periphery, uh, once we've got over this period of indigestion and we've cleared out some of the, uh, the looser longs, I think periphery with the support of the ECB, with the support of Japanese investors flowing into um, European bonds on a hedge basis. So there's, you know, there's, there's potential there. In terms of duration, yeah, I mean, we still think that Yields will be declining in part because we can't actually see anything clear 
clearly saying that the global economy is about to re-accelerate. In fact, for choice, most of our indicators are still saying the global economy is going to slow. That was a great summary. Uh, it saves me the need to summarise what you've just said. So all that remains for me to do is to thank Bob for being in conversation today and thank you all very much for listening. This ends the podcast for this week.